Hooked on Health, a Go Loud original. You're very welcome in to the Hooked on Health podcast with Eric Donovan. It is Willow Callahan here from OTB Sports. We're back after a bit of a break, which was enforced upon us with the Olympics. Uh, Eric and I were both uh, fairly busy. But Eric, I think you enjoyed the Olympic experience on the TV with RTE and all of it capped off quite nicely with Ireland taking two medals and particularly Kelly Harrington's gold. Oh, it was brilliant, Will. Wasn't it like, um, I love the Olympic Games, you know, there's just something really, really special about it. And when, you know, as Kenneth Egan said as well, gold medals in this country are very, very rare. So for us to come away with one from the row and one from the box was uh, a very successful Olympics, I have to say. We were chatting about Kelly before the Olympics and it was all about realising the potential in so many ways, given that she's been so impressive since stepping out of the shadow of Katie Taylor in 2016. And given that she was a previous world champion and given how well she had boxed back in June at the qualifiers, we were also hopeful that she was going to pick up a medal. But it was particularly special to see her go on and become an Olympic champion, which we had all expected her to do. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, she became the Olympic champion in a very like what was that? was a world-class performance absolutely fantastic one of the greatest performances I think um from any Irish athlete in Olympic Games because she was up against Beatrice Ferreira who uh, we all know and um she was a ferocious opponent you know she was tipped for the gold medal Kelly may have been the number one seed um but Ferreira was the bookie's favorite Ferreira was the bookie's favourite. She was undefeated for two years. She never boxed Kelly, which is which is kind of gas as well. The two of them were world, two of them were world champion. Kelly 2018, Ferreira 2019. But Kelly wasn't in that world championships because she had an injury to her wrist. So here was the two world champions fighting each other in the Olympic final and the biggest stage for the biggest reward. Um, and Ferreira looked unbeatable before the fight. But it was going to take a world-class, one hell of a performance to, to beat her. And Kelly pulled it out of the bag. She was absolutely exceptional. And what was so good about her performance was that she actually made Ferreira, who looked unbeatable, look quite ordinary in the end. And that shows you how good of a performance it was. Yeah, look, just incredible control within that final in the second and third round particularly. And the second round that Kelly put in against Cison D in mm. the semi-final and then to finish the job in the third, they mm. call them kind of the championship rounds. And we got mm. those huge performances when it really mattered from Kelly Harrington, Eric. Yeah. And even you touched on the Cison D fight there as well. Like that, you know, cannot be underestimated like that performance there. Like that was more like a chess match, a real thinking game, a real... There was very little in that fight, very little, but Kelly just pulled out um, a little bit of um, class, just a little bit of class. And that's what separated her from D because that fight was so technical, so finely balanced. And, um, you know, to come through that, I remember actually sending her, I, I, I felt after that, that fight there, uh, I felt compelled to send Kelly a WhatsApp message. I was just like, because I knew she switched off all tech, the, the, so as, uh, all um, what they call a social media and everything, but I sent her a message because I just felt like I just felt I had to, you know, and I sent her an audio and um, 
I was just like, Kelly, you're brilliant. You're doing everything is brilliant out there, inside the ring, outside the ring. Keep it up. I know you're not going to hear this message till you get home, but anyway, just we're all proud of you and you just keep going. Next minute, about five minutes later, I get a message <laughs> and it's a reply <laughs> and it's from Kelly. She goes, oh, Eric, yeah, I've not switched off all social media. I'm on my WhatsApp, you know, and, and she just started sending me a couple of memes that were just like funny memes and stuff. And I was just like, this is brilliant because she's just completely switched off the whole intensity of it all do you know what i mean and she's just enjoying herself and she sent a few funny me- memes which would suggest the kind of headspace she was in you know and 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 that was it was just amazing like um but yeah going back to that semi-final like that was a really really close fight and a hard fought fight as well like i know that people looking at it may not think that there wasn't a lot happening in it in terms of action and kind of firepower and stuff like that. But that was a huge win. Well, look, we're in the middle of moving from you as a pundit to going back to you back in the ring this coming weekend. And after a couple of fights that fell through earlier in the summer, you must be really looking forward to getting back into the ring because you haven't fought uh, since pretty much winter of last year. Yeah. um, Yeah. Last December was the last time I was in the ring, Will, and, um, you know, got six rounds that time over in Belgium against Rafael Castillo. And uh, I had two fights lined up since that. Uh, One in March was back in Belgium, but my opponent, uh, through some medical uh, logistics or something like that, couldn't get out there and it was too late for us to get a replacement. So, um, so that fight fell through March um, of this year. And then in May, I was training for the EU European title fight, as everybody knows. And I picked up an injury to my rib 10 days before the fight. So kind of bit of, you know, this year hasn't really promised so much, but hasn't really delivered yet. So I'd be, I'd be looking forward to getting into the ring this weekend and boxing. And also I'll be boxing in front of a crowd for the first time in a long time. And I can't wait for that. I have a load of fans coming up Um to the Europa Hotel in Belfast on Saturday night. It's going to be a dinner show, which will be nice and kind of unique and kind of a small, intimate gig where there's going to be like a four-course meal. There's only like 250 fans allowed in. Could have been sold four or five times over. Um, And then there's going to be a little bit of entertainment and then five professional fights, I think it is. So, yeah, this this is a very, very important fight for me in terms of getting back on track getting the rounds under my belt and hopefully before the end of the year, I can get back into title contention. Not quite the same as having thousands of fans packed into an arena again, but still the hum of that crowd is going to be nice to have them back after a couple of years of having nobody at your fights. Oh man, I, I, I can't wait for it. Like, you know, I really can't. Like I said, I could have sold this. I could have sold, like I, I ended up selling like, I don't know what, 80, 90 tickets, but I could have sold three or four times that, you know, if like people are still looking for tickets and it's sold out. Um, But I'm just so happy to have the fans there because boxing on fight night is what we do it for. You know, it's that thrill, that buzz, that just exhilarating feeling that goes through your body and all of the hard work that you put in in the training camp gets to be showcased on that stage, you know, and when people are not there cheering you on, it just, it loses that kind of special effect that it has. Um, so yeah, um, I'm buzzing for, it. I'm working with Mark Dunlop, who's a brilliant manager and, you know, he's, 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 his record is testament to that. You know, he gets his fighters to big fights and 
he knows that I need rounds now after not being in the ring for so long. So he, he just told me to focus on one fight at a time. But I think he's working away behind the scenes on a big fight for me. So fingers crossed, something good will come up in the in the very near future. All right, well, let's get into this week's guest then. Tell me why you picked Jer Redmond as someone you wanted to sit down with. Oh, well, I tell you, I picked Jer Redmond because I was watching the... Um, the Hell Week show on RTE, if you ever, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's kind of a Ranger, Army Rangers um, course where to put civilians, which you could public, just the general public through um, an incredible strenuous uh, course of mental and physical challenges and obstacles. And they just really test them to the, to the limit and try and break them. And it's um, one of the toughest kind of, courses military style courses in the world i believe the irish army rangers one so i was watching that one time and i i became aware of Jer redmond he was on the show um and later afterwards i looked him up and i saw an interview or two that he did and i was fascinated by his story he's you know a, a former professional footballer who had so much aspirations and dreams of one day making it in the big leagues, you know, and and then of course something happened in his in his life back home in his family home in in uh, Dar- I think he should, I think it was from Darndale, I think, um, uh, in North Dublin anyway, North I think it was North Dublin. Something happened back home that kind of derailed his journey, you know, and he had to come back, and then it just threw a whole spanner in the works, and he found himself going down the wrong road, and found himself he ended up in prison which is like he went from being a professional athlete to ending up in prison and wondering how his life had just completely derailed and he was trying to fix and put back the pieces together and to try and get himself out of this mess that he was in and he tells the story so brilliantly and i've listened to a good few of his interviews and i was fascinated by him um first of all by his honesty and then his resilience and his ability to kind of you know navigate his way through uh, a very very difficult life and come out the other side so i was said this guy is this this is a guy i want to talk to this is a guy i, I would love to have, sit down and have a chat with so and you know what he didn't disappoint incredible story incredible podcast yeah, really, really interesting. Listen, let's get into it. This is Jer Redmond sitting down with Eric Donovan. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all keeping fit and well today. You're very welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. I am your host, Eric Donovan. And uh, one person who knows all about staying and keeping fit and well is my next guest. He is a professional triathlete. He's also a coach in the same field. And he's got... Uh, such an interesting fascinating story and i'm delighted that he has agreed to sit down and share it with us all today i think you're going to really enjoy it Gerard redmond welcome to the podcast how are you keeping Ger? thanks for having me eric how's things yeah pretty good Gerard. to be fair um i've been really looking forward to this chat now for a while and you know what let's delve straight into it like but before I do, I just want to ask, how has life been for you at the moment, you know, with the challenges around COVID and how are you coping with all of that? I'm probably the wrong person or the right person to ask that question because, you know, 
because I've been through so much adversity and resilience in my whole life, I don't actually find this a big issue, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, I see myself as being king of resilience, to be honest with you. Um, when you've come from a background um, and from stuff that I've been through in life, it's a hell lot worse than, than where we are today um, in the COVID pandemic. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really not that bad, to be honest with you. I can think of a hundred things worse that I could, I could inflict on people if they want to see what's on the other side, you know? Yeah, I would consider myself to be the same, same type of person, you know, and sometimes I actually feel a little bit guilty that I'm not struggling uh, enough or, you know, because there's so many people out there struggling. But look, I have to count my blessings like I'm able to continue with my job and keep training. And I've been out of country a few times, like, you know, and, you know, so I'm lucky enough in that in that regard. Um, but you're right, you know, you have had a lot to contend with throughout your life and you have overcome a lot of adversity. So I'm no surprise there that you are strong-minded and resilient person. Um, so do you want to take us back and tell us about your, your journey through life? You know, what, you know, where you're from, what it was like growing up? So I grew up in North County, Dublin, in a place called Darnell. Um, it's a deprived area. As I, I'll explain Darnell to you, it'll be Rob Carr's um, people always fight with each other. Now, when I say fighting, it's not fist fighting. It'd be guns and knives. And, you know, everyone's sort of, you know, they're not very helpful. Everyone's trying to get one up on you at, at all times. It's a negative place to be. It's a bad environment for anyone to grow up in. And I suppose, in hindsight, you probably haven't got a, ch- a chance in life, if you grow up in an area like this, it's very hard to get any opportunities. Um, at the age of 10, I suppose, like growing up, my, my dream was always to be a soccer player, regardless of where, I didn't realise where I grew up was, you know, a deprived area, because I didn't know what the difference was in deprived area and a, a middle class and an upper class, because I'd never been to any other areas. So, as far as I was concerned, this was as normal as can be. And, my dream was to be a soccer player, and that was it. So I didn't see anything else other than stadiums, playing for Ireland, and scoring goals. And, you know, um, I had a lot of negativity in the, in, the, in the home, you know, with the father, the mother. They'd always argue. My mother was a, a drinker. My father would have drank and gambled. It wasn't a nice place to be. There was no heat in the house. I was sent to school with no lunches. I'd be woke up last minute, put on the bus. I was a bedwetter as a young kid. I was never washed and sent to school, so I always got slagged in school and jeered and felt like I was, you know, singled out. Um, that that hit me really bad, my self-belief. And then the mindset, you think everyone's slagging you. And, and they probably are, to be honest with you. But um, I suppose I've, I always felt the finger was pointed at me from a young age and I found soccer and sport as an outlet that I was accepted in soccer and sport and I became, became really good at that sport and I was probably chasing could have been a bit part of me chasing a bit of you know want people wanting me people accepting me um, and that made me want to be better at it and I became really good at it like extremely good like I, I remember I used to go to different estates I'd see them playing football and be standing there bumming the game, you know, <laughs> looking for a game of football. <laughs> That's what I loved. I always wanted to prove myself, you know. At the age of, I think it was 14, 
I got a trial with the Dublin team. I was picked and went down to represent Dublin in, Lan- in um, Limerick in the Kennedy Cup, which is a big, big prestigious cup for teenagers. It was here that um, I played really well representing Dublin. A scout came to watch me in Kewlock. I was playing for St. Columbans. Came to watch me. I played really well in that game. I knew he was coming. And I said, this is my opportunity. They're far, you know, far, you're not going to get many opportunities from where I live. It was unheard of someone becoming a soccer player, professional at that stage. Um, he watched me. I played extremely well. He came down to the house and offered me a, a trial in Dunfermline in Scotland. And I remember, like, this was like a dream, you know, like come true. Like, this was what all I thought about. I, I lived football. I watched matches of the day as much as I could. Any football game that was on the telly on RTE, of course, because I wouldn't have the <laughs> wouldn't have Sky Sports or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't have the luxuries of other people, you know. Yeah, you must have had a tremendous belief in yourself and your abilities because, I mean, even when you knew the scouts were coming down, you you embraced that challenge and and performed. Eric, I was I was that confident with a football. I couldn't understand how you'd give a ball to someone and they'd they mess it up. It didn't cover it. I couldn't make sense of that. If I give you a ball and, and you, you lose the ball, I'd be like, how could you lose the ball? I, I was that glued to a football on a daily basis. Yeah. When someone gave me the ball, I'd done something with a positive all the time. I either put it in the back of the net, I put someone through, I gave a ball back, I never lost the ball. That was always my objective. But yeah, I was that comfortable on the ball that I just, you know, I was that confident and comfortable that I knew I, I'd perform, you know? The week of going over to Scotland, I remember sitting in a friend's house playing FIFA, right? I'm playing with Dunfermline and mm. we're sitting there and he's playing me and I'm with Dunfermline. And Dunfermline aren't great on FIFA, but it was surreal for me to play with the players I'm just about to meet on FIFA, you know? Mm. So that was like, you had to pinch me before I went over because it was that much of a, a dream come true. I got off a flight in Scotland and there's a soccer game on. The under-16s are playing Falkirk. So they bring me down and ask me, do I want to talk out? And I'm like, oh, what? Like, you know, seriously. Yeah. I get all the new gear on. I lose in 3-1. 20 minutes to go, they put me on. Give me the show. I'm like clapping the hand, you know? Yeah. I get on. Um, I score two goals and I laid up the winner. I mean, 1-4-3, right? But that's how confident I was. Like, as far as I was concerned, once I got that trial, I was there. That was it. You just give me the opportunity. I'm taking this opportunity with both hands. Yeah. That confidence came out of me as a soccer player. Mm. And I wasn't gonna, you know, I wasn't gonna um I was gonna give this a full 100 percent of my ability, you know. I wasn't gonna shy away from it. I wasn't gonna let pressure get to me. Mm. Um, and I showed on the pitch that day. And I remember when I laid up the, the fourth goal and the winner, like I remember saying to myself, that's it, I'm getting signed here. It's all over. Yeah. Like, you know? And I walked off the pitch with the chest high going, you just want to sign me, don't just... They were all over me. Falkirk wanted to sign me. There were scouts there from Celtic wanted to sign me. Mm. They'd made contact with Dunfermline. They knew I was a trialist. Mm. Um, but the next day, obviously, Dunfermline got a hold of me because they had me over there for the week. So I had to go train on the Monday morning with them. The, the first team manager took me into his office, brought me around the whole stadium, East Den Park, and I signed a YTS contract that day. I didn't care who I was signing for. I just yeah. wanted to sign. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you train a scholarship, apprenticeship, professional, really. I was, yeah. uh, they sent me home to get me a fares, Nord. I should have no fares. <laughs> what was I going home for? 
What was it like, you know, going back to your home family and your community and like I, I, I grew up in a, in a council estate myself, you know, deemed a disadvantaged area and thank God for boxing. I was able to get out and travel the country and travel the world. Um, but there's people in my community who've never even got outside the town, you know, so um, what was that? Ex- what was it like telling everybody? Like, I, I don't even know if I could explain the emotion I felt telling people, you know. It was just, it was like I, it was like I got the professional contract, like I was playing for Ireland. My dreams had all come true. I was representing a, a, a disadvantaged area, and here I am, a kid. It was like Ryder Rover. Do you remember Ryder Rover? Like, yeah. That's what I felt like. I was like walking around. I thought I was a celebrity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the confidence was so high. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, how do you gauge a confidence? But I was just the most confident person you'd ever talk to. I talked to anyone. I just felt such confidence from that. I felt the beacon of life for the area, you know. And what was the response like from? from the people in your community? Were they happy? Were they delighted for you? Oh, like, I mean, anyone that come up to me was shaking me hands and, you know, they were just well done, fair play, and the family was getting a great buzz out because people were saying to them, your son's on trials, he's gone over, and he's playing football professionally. Like, So the family was very proud and all the all the uncles and aunties and everyone was backing it, you know. It was a great thing for everyone. Yeah. Uh, lift for the, for the area, to be honest with you. So you moved over, Jar. And tell us how the experience went. Yeah, so I moved over there. And I, I moved into a, an annex over a pub um, in East Fife. And uh, I, to get, I used to have to get the bus to, to, to walk every morning, you know, soccer. Walk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unreal, like, you know, yeah. you're going to walk uh, in a stadium to play football. like. Uh, but, like, I used to go up and I'd have to clean the boots for the professionals. Mm. You'd sweep the floors when they were finished. But I loved it. I loved being around inspirational people. These are the lads I wanted to be. And what better people to be around than professional athletes? Like, just, yeah. you know, in, in the sport that you want to thrive in. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was like, you know, when you go and you see the superstar, like your, your favorite superstar, every day I was doing that. These lads were in the news, not the news, they were in the, the like, in, on Sky Sports, they were playing for Scotland, yeah. you know, they were very prominent in, in the public eye. And here's me, I'm cleaning the bleeding boots for them. I'm making them cheesy sandwiches, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. class, like, very inspirational. Um, and what a place. I was getting a wage, like, off them every week, getting a wage, you know, yeah. then bringing the wage to home, showing them. And- yeah, like, getting paid for something you would have done every day of your life for absolutely nothing. It's amazing, isn't it? amazing like it's it's yeah it was it was it was a surreal experience like i'll never forget it i still remember like um and it's only now like lately that like the last few years that i can actually delve back into that that emotion you know because it was a negative it became a negative after a while you know so you're out there and you have a, a like a scholarship apprenticeship you're doing well and what happens next so I'm there for a few months and I'm employing my trade really well and I'm moving through the ranks and with the, the reserves and that and I get a call one day to say my father had committed a crime back home in Kulak. Pretty bad crime. Um, so I'm, I know my mother's a drinker and my father has been put in prison for this now at this stage. I had five other brothers and sisters. So I'm like, I, w- I wanted to go home. You know, it was on my mind. 
it was affecting me football for the few days that yeah. after I heard about it. I went to the coach and I asked him, can I go home just to see, you know, see what's happening, make sure everything's all right. So got a few bits together, went home. I got off a flight in Dublin airport and I didn't realise at the time, but I was just about to go down the, rock, the, 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 the biggest hole. I was about to go into the biggest hole I've ever found myself in, in life. Down yeah. the, the deepest, darkest hole you'll ever find yourself in, Eric, you know? Yeah. yeah. I didn't realise, but I suppose when I, when I got the taxi to the, to the house, the house was boarded up. One of the windows had been broke. My mother was in the house with people from the road who shouldn't have been there, like drinking. And my brother and sister were rambling around. Fordham was under the age of ten. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's where I came into after being inspired by soccer players, living my dream, making it from the private area. You know, trying to get out and do the best I could. Yeah. We brought back to this and the reality of what do I do now? I mean, there's two choices. One, one choice was to go back, pursue my dream, leave them in the shit, forget about my brothers and sisters. Um, the other choice was to join a criminal gang, one, for protection, two, to put food on the table. There was no one there for us as such, you know, not really yeah. there for us. There was people helping, helping as much as they could probably, you know. Yeah. Everyone has two sides to every, there's two sides to every, uh, you know, two two sides to every story. Um so I can't really say too much. He weren't there because everyone has their own life. Yeah. Um, but there was no one there as such. So myself and my sister, Leslie, um, we inevitably had to take over and look after the kids because my mother actually left the house a month later. She went off to Liverpool with another man and left myself and my sister look after four kids under the age of 10. That left me having really no choice other than to join the criminal gang because we are under threat from the family my father had committed this crime yeah. against. Yeah. So I, I manned up in a sense and joined the criminal gang. I was able to feed me, me, me family, was able to provide for them and also was able to keep them safe, which was most mm. important because yeah. it, it was a threat on us. But that sent me... Like I had so much resentment from that, from losing my professional contract, yeah. from my father like being so selfish and what he done, yeah, um, and not stepping up, and being a man and inspiring his own kids and taking this as a good thing and going, you yeah. know what, we're gonna all change now and move forward with him because yeah. it could have been great for everyone. Saying my mother, my mother then she left home and left us all a month later. Went off yeah. with man. Some turn of events, really, isn't it? And um sure there'll be many people listening to this and they're probably thinking why didn't he just turn around why didn't he go back to Dunfermline like why didn't he just get back on a plane and go back to Scotland but you know I can understand actually um, I look I've done a bit of I'm a student counsellor at the moment myself and um, I was I remember doing a particular uh, module on the the positioning of the positioning of you and your family like are you are you the are you the oldest or the joint oldest Second oldest, I'm the yeah. old boy. In that position, you can become the fixer, the helper, you know, the person that takes the mantle, so to speak. So I'm not surprised that, like, you felt in that in that situation that, you know, you, you, you had to step up, you know. But it makes you think about what could have been. Um, but also, there's a flip side of that as well. It just shows you how easily it is to fall through the cracks and get involved in gangland and... 
and and criminality and drugs. I mean, I grew up in 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 an environment as well where I I've seen class A drugs from the age of like thirteen. I've seen ecstasy. I've seen hash. I've seen cocaine. Bags full of it. Like I've seen it around, you know. And how easy it is for young youngsters, vulnerable people who can get caught up in that type of lifestyle and they think that it's the only way it's the only choice you know they have no education no qualifications and they believe that that's the only option available to them and it, be- it almost becomes like a survival instinct just to make money you know you got to make money to survive regardless how the way the deprived areas operate that's that's where they see themselves making a book they don't want to go to work, but it's a generational thing. Yeah. It's the, the, the people who are there before them, i.e. the mother and father, they need to change the generation. They need to grab the bull by the horns and say, oh, I'm going to change and inspire the kids coming behind me. Someone needs to change the generation. We're in the yeah. That's what I've done. I've grabbed yeah. the bull by the horn and say, that's it. No more messing. No more earning money off criminal stuff. No more getting the, the social welfare. Let's earn a living. Let's be normal. Let's try and create something here for the kids coming behind us so that yeah. that's all they know. Because it's yeah. very important as parents that we set an environment for our kids. It's, it's you know, it's so important. Oh, it's very important. Very, very important. I, I, I can relate to your story so much. And I mean, like boxing was, was, was a way out for me. You know, like I... My own mom and dad separated when I was only a child and that brought its own challenges as well. But I mean, um, in my community, I well, growing up, I always had one foot down the wrong road and one foot down the right road. And I was always to and fro between both and being pulled from one side to the next. But, you know, thank God for boxing and my club coach. Um, Dominic O'Rourke, like he chased me and followed me and pursued me and um, you know, kick it, pull me back to the club, kicking and screaming sometimes. But you know, you, you know, I'm very, very grateful that I had that kind of person there that um, never gave up on me. You know, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, but Jer, going back to the drugs and the criminality and the gangland lifestyle, and you know that it, there's it, there's no fairy tale ending with that. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it. I've witnessed it. You know, I've seen some real tragic, tragic stories and um, heartbreaking stories, really. Like, you might think you're doing well for a while. You might have money in your pocket. You think you're financially secure, but you're not. It's a false financial security. You know, it's only, it's not real. It's not honest. And eventually it's going to collapse. It's only a matter of time. Um, But like, as I said, you think it's all going well and it might go well for a very long time. But eventually the wheels are going to come off, aren't they? 100%. 100%. There's two ways out, they say. There's jail and then there's a coffin. And that's yeah. the only way out of uh, a long term in, uh, in the gangland. I got involved and I was on the end of the rung of the ladder. And I wasn't too, too, wasn't too, too long getting up the top of it. Due to the fact that I had so much resentment. And in that sort of environment, the more aggressive you are, you know, the more people fear you, the more money you'll make, the more other people want to walk with you. So I found myself being fairly up there, up the top there within, you know, a few years. Um, I vented on everyone and adults had let me down. So I hated that, all adults. Yeah. All this negative energy I was putting into, you know, yeah. this, this, um, this gang, I suppose, if you like, um, yeah. into, into the community. I was a bully. I was wasn't really a nice person to be around. Yeah. Um, 
you, you could do anything on me I, I'd want to give you a slap you know but that's all learned behaviour Jar, isn't it like it's learned behaviour I remember growing up myself even in sc- even my school days you know, I used to feel inferior you know to, to a lot of people and you know my way of getting equal with them was trying you know be slagging them or take them down a, a peg or two take the mick out of them just to make myself feel better but that showed massive insecurities in me but it's all learned behaviour I used to do all the time slag people like and it, mm. it's, it is it's an insecurity because yeah. you're, you're slightly jealous of what they have or you're slightly jealous of their lifestyle or maybe you have a mother and father and you're like you just slag them just to make yourself feel better but yeah. it is big time insecurity I used to do it all the time I actually addressed it in the counselling session there recently well that's interesting that you mentioned the counselling there and I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that in a second but let's just get back to your story so the wheels did come off for you like I contemplated suicide three times like very close to it and the only thing that stopped me was I didn't want to put my family through any more than they had been put through yeah that's what stopped me right in 2013 there was drugs found in the house and a girlfriend I was with at the time in her house and she was getting charged and I went down do you want mine like I put my hand up I got Three years suspended for that, right? The night I got suspended sentence, the guards came, uh, they were following me because it was suspended for one year. So if you do happen within the one year, you get the three years activated. So they, they chased me and I had some cocaine on me. I'd run it away. They found it and put it in my pocket. For the full year, I tried to evade. I tried to push back the courts, all that. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. So how far I was going, when it was, I was going down to... St. Michael's House, which is a mental home, saying there was something wrong with me. So I'd, yeah. avoid, the, I'd avoid the car date, right? Because yeah. if if I pushed the car date out of the year, then I wouldn't get sentenced for the yeah. three years, right? So, But that backfired, right? So I got convicted within the year, right? Mm. Went up to the court. Got, they put you in remand force for a week. So they remanded me mm. in Clover Hill when I, when I went to Clover Hill. Because I had been um, saying there was something wrong with me, they put me on the medical wing, right? <laughs> put me in these Homer Simpson jocks <laughs> <laughs> and a red jumper. <laughs> There's me, right? <laughs> I went up onto the wing and I was late coming up about half six and they bang out the doors in the prison at seven. And the, the cell I went in, there was a one-man cell and there was a guy in there and I got a blanket and I was at the end of the bed on the floor and he turns around and says to me, do you mind if I have a shit? <laughs> What was I supposed to say? No, will you wait till the morning? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> having a shit, right? <laughs> With a bottle of uh, a bottle of fresh or something spraying as so I got smell it. And it's it's open like. And then he turns around and goes, after he has a shit, obviously, he goes, What are you in for? And I said, drugs offenses. And I said, What are you in for? And he goes, I'm a schizophrenic and I'm in for murder. <laughs> I didn't sleep a wink that night. I slept with two eyes on, not one eye. <laughs> that was an experience for me because I was like, Jesus, like, is this what's going to be? Yeah. And I got sentenced to two years with one suspended. And I was put in Mountjoy Prison. In Mountjoy Prison, you're on the sea wing, the sea base, you put you there first, the priest comes to you. Um, and uh, they put uh, little teddy bears in your pillow and give you a big hug. What? Really? No. <laughs> you bollocks, yeah. Oh, stop. <laughs> oh. No, but that was another thing that, that hit me as well because I remember sitting there that night after being sentenced to two years and the realisation hit me that I'm going in the same generation, the same road my father mm. took. Like, my granddad was locked up. 
my father was locked up and here's me following the same footsteps. And I remember when my dad got locked up, I said, how can he do that to us? Like, you know, and then here's me doing the exact same thing to my yeah. children. So that hit me and I got weak because I had a picture of my kid on the wall and I took it down and I said, that's it. Again, the resilience kicked in. I said, I'm not going to look at any pictures. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to be ready to rock because Mountjoy Prison is like a furnace, right? Mm. And all the prisoners that go in, they're like little aerosol cans. Did you ever throw an aerosol can into a fire as a kid? I'm sure you did. Oh, I did. <laughs> of course I did. But you don't know when it's going to blow, right? All yeah. these prisoners are like aerosol cans and they've yeah. all these issues and problems and they can go at any time, right? Yeah. That's the way I would explain Mountjoy. It's a big burning furnace and, the mount- and all the prisoners are little aerosol cans because they go off at any time. You're walking around and boom, they just blow, you know? Yeah. I was ready, strong, fit, healthy, um, and I swore, that's my son at the door, <laughs> I swore I'd be ready, you know, um, and I wouldn't get weakened by anything. Yeah, and where did that kind of, where did that resilience come from? Like, because you went in there because you were a part of a gang, because you were engaging in gangland activity, and now suddenly you're in a kind of a marketplace for gangland activity. And what 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 was it that just made you decide that no I'm you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna go a different route this time I'm gonna I'm gonna make a change I'm gonna break the link and I'm not gonna fall through the cracks and go back into my old ways. Do you remember the defining moment? Well, I had four kids at the time, Eric. I swore that I wouldn't bring them up to prison. So my my goal I always set myself goals within the parameters that I find myself in. Right, no matter where I am. Even at the COVID, I always set goals. No matter what, I broke my neck there recently, I set goals. I always do it. It's just something I was, I don't know if I was born with it, but uh, it's installed in me. So when I got locked up, I said, right, what's the goal? Right, I'm not going to see the kids, but you know what? If I go to an open prison, I'll be able to see them. So my, uh, my goal is to go to an open prison as soon as possible. Yeah. So what i done was, I, I knew I got my head down, done the gym twice a day, went to the school, got educated, got a job. I'd be down there. And I was down there within seven months. So that was my goal to get me through the prison sentence, not get caught yeah. up in the shit, you know? That's very interesting, you know, because I was in the joy back in 2011. <laughs> you're looking at me now, you're thinking, what the hell did he do? No, I was actually, I wasn't locked up. I was actually in there as a, as a fitness coach. Um, look, in 2010, I won a European bronze medal. And in 2011, I was invited in to show the prisoners my medal um, with the possibility of doing some fitness classes afterwards. And we actually won five medals at that European Championships for Ireland. And um, so some of my teammates were invited in as well, but none of them could make it. And I was left on my own. I'll never forget it. I was standing in a classroom, I think it was, or uh, some sort of uh, gym room or something upstairs. And the... There was a noise then, like, and I could hear all the doors opening, and I could hear just this clatter of feet running up a stairs, and the noise of the lads. They were like a wild bunch of kids legging it up the stairs, and I was getting more and more nervous. Well, the sound was getting louder and louder, and then um, next minute they came in, and they were like, uh, "Where's this boxer? Where's this boxer?" You know, and. Uh, one of the, the teachers, um, she pointed at me like, you know, and he go, one guy goes, who, him? I battered him so I would. And I was like, oh, my God, get me out of here. <laughs> but you know what? 
actually turned out to be just a sound bunch of people like really sound and asking some great questions as well and I was asking them questions too because I was fascinated about their lives and how they ended up there so I actually went back in and did 12 weeks there um, afterwards and did 12 weeks of a kind of a fitness program and I remember speaking to one guy big guy now big big guy big muscular guy and he was a really gentle type of person really sound really easy going and I just turned around to him one day and I just said to him I had a couple of weeks left before I was due to finish and I, I just said to him um, how long is how long have you got left you know and he said um, I, oh I don't know um, you'd have to ask the state and I was a little bit confused by that but I didn't want to press him on it you know he was a big he was a big man um, but I later found out and I'm glad I didn't either because I later found out he was he was a lifer he was doing life and uh it's mad because I could never ever picture him as you know somebody who could be in for a serious crime and now he has to spend the rest of his life in prison and his fate lies in the hands of the state basically madness look when you get life there's no date on your door that's what they say you know it's all parole boards and parole boards and you have to head in with the system and do certain courses and to be honest when I was locked up that's one thing that struck me was the eyes of a lifer like you can yeah. see it in them, they're lost, and the souls are lost. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Always, yeah. always struck me, always hit me. Like, yeah. that was the one thing I sort of took from it. Um, the lifers that walk around, you can yeah. see their souls are gone. Because ah. they Jesus. don't know when they're getting out. Yeah. It's a, it's a bad place to be, Eric. Like, you know, it is. It's not mm. great, obviously. You know, you make the best of a bad situation, but I wouldn't like to be there for 20 years, like. Ah, stop, I know. Imagine spending your life in there. Like, I used to only spend one or two hours in there. And any time I left, I just felt this sense of freedom. It was like, oh, God, freedom. Like, and I, like, obviously, I'm working in there. I never, like, didn't do anything wrong. But you still, it makes you, when you're walking back out into that car park and the doors are shutting behind you, it makes you appreciate your freedom a little bit more. But come here. You were determined. You you just had it in your head. You you know you had this strong mindset. You said you're not going to fall back into old habits, fall back through the cracks, and you were determined that you're going to make make a change and make it work this time. Before I got out, I remember sitting in a prison cell, right? And I remember sitting there, and I remember saying to myself, "My life is gone." It just flashed in front of me. And when I was a professional soccer player, I come off that flight to sitting in that cell. Mm. I remember saying, wait, my life's gone. I'm done now. I'm never going to do anything else with my life. Like, that's me. You know, I'm yeah. just going to go back out, be, be, pick up where I left off, be a criminal, um, and that's it. And I really, really thought that was it. My life was gone, and mm. it wasn't going to amount to anything or ever be anything else other than, you know, who I was at the time. Mm. I suppose that little boy always was there that I did make it when I was a kid, you know. So I always had that little, little, small bit at that stage, sort yeah. of chipping away at me. But then, look, I did get out, and uh, a couple of things happened. I remember my son Ross was due in October 2016, and um, I got out in 2016. Didn't wait, didn't wait around, Eric. I was talking to my other friend, because I have four girls, and this was the boy coming, right? Because I was waiting for the boy. My friend had a kid, a little boy, and we were away on holidays. I remember asking him, what's it like to have a boy? And he's telling me little adventure stories. Oh, yeah. I'm doing this on the train, and we go to Hope, or whatever, you know? Two weeks later, my friend died took drugs and he died, right? And I went to the funeral and the kid walked up to the coffin. And I remember sitting there, right? And I put my head in my hands 
all the kid wanted. It wasn't, see, a lot of people that were in the criminal gang justify by saying, I'm doing it for my family, I'm making money for this, I'm making money for that. Mm-hmm. It's absolute bullshit, right? It's hardship because, yeah. you know, your family are the most important thing. This kid looked into the coffin and all he wanted was his dad. He didn't want material stuff. He wanted mm-hmm. to touch and feel and love. That's it. And that's mm. the day that the light bulb went off for me and I said, that's it, I'm done. Mm. Who am I to now walk out here at the scene what's after unfolding in front of my eyes? Who am I with five kids, like mm. four and one on the way, to now go back and do what I was doing um, in a high-risk environment? Who am I to do that? And that mm. was it. I've done that. And I said, I'm done. And I was done. And I started to rebuild my life. I started to surround myself with like-minded people. Mate mine was doing an Ironman. Um, I said, you know what, can I do a bit of training with you? I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest with you, but I know I wanted to change, and that's all I knew. So it wasn't about what, what I was going to do, I just wanted to change, and I was just drawn to people who are doing something positive, right? So I yeah. picked this guy that I went to school with, Mick Kyo, and started training with him. He went to do an Ironman in October 2016, I went over to watch him, to try and just be around him, and he finished it. I then start thinking, because other people finish the 50, 60 year old. It's like, mm. you know, the thought came into my head, maybe I could do that, right? Mm. Now, annoying man, I don't know if you know what annoying man is, but it's a 3.8 swim in the sea. I'm familiar with them, Jerry, yeah. But like, go on, tell us anyway. They're a serious thing to do. Yeah, so it's 180k on, on the bike and then a full marathon at the end, right? I never swam and I couldn't swim, Eric. I, I never done a swim in a, a one length. I couldn't do one length of a pill. Mm. But it wasn't about that. It was about the journey and about the, the change, right? So I wanted just to latch on to something. So I signed on, up for Ironman Maastricht in 2017. In January, I started training. I, I went to the pool for my first, first swim and I had a pair of Bermuda shorts on and no goggles. That <laughs> 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 it was. Right? And I, you know what? It wasn't, as I said, I didn't even know I was going to finish the Ironman in, in, in the August it was, right? August the 6th. I didn't even know, but it wasn't about that. So I just kept persevering, kept going back down, kept training. I wanted to show my wife, my family, and myself that, you know, I, I am going to do this change, and I'm not going back to that life, and I'm determined. Mm-hmm. So I set myself that big goal. I remember arriving in Matrix in, uh, in the August um, for the Ironman, right? Mm-hmm. And I just got this feeling. It was, it was just around so many inspirational people. Everyone was there for the right reasons. Yeah. They are all there to encourage you, you know? And it was just a beautiful morning. And I just felt, I had my life back. Like, you know, yeah. I'd been involved for 16 yeah. years in this yeah. crap, this negative state yeah. that had dragged me down, all this negative inside me. And now I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this into a positive. I felt yeah. so alive, you know. I remember the hairs were standing on the back of my neck at the race. And I was like rubbing my hands. And in an Ironman, um, certain races, the, when you went to the swim, so this was in a canal. We were going in the fours, right, and then it buzzes. So you went in fours and goes beep, and then four seconds later, it beeps. I remember diving in, and I didn't even know I was going to swim, finish the swim at this stage. <laughs> and there was a big bridge behind me, and I remember swimming, and I took two strokes, looked back, and I seen a, like a, a picture of my old self on the bridge, and I swam off into it. It was unreal. like, And I got through the, the swim, obviously, onto the bike, mm. and then... On the run, people told me you'll suffer. It's a full full marathon. You're going to suffer. It's yeah. a good race. And, you know, I went looking for the suffering, Eric. Yeah. I've been through suffering in my life. Sports, to me, was not suffering. So I yeah. was going around looking for it, 
feeling, you know, looking for the pain, looking for this suffering that people have been telling me about. wasn't there. My mind had been calloused to suffering. Suffering, real life suffering is what we go through in deprived areas. Real life suffering is losing your mother and father, losing a professional contract, nearly killing yourself three times, you know, losing all that and growing up looking after your brothers and sisters, having to give away your, your professional contract. That's suffering, you know. Mm. So to me, I, I was enjoying this new suffering, you know, and I had all this negative energies and now I found a new way to vent it in a positive way, which really propelled me to be um, a top athlete. Um, so I decided to do Lanzarote, which is the toughest Ironman in the world, to test that mental state. I said, right, if I'm that strong, let's go to the biggest and best one. Signed up for Lanzarote, 2018. I've done that in a really good time, um, 10.50. And again, the marathon, I think it was 38 degrees, I've done a 306 marathon off the bike, which is really good. And tough L course. Again, I went look for the suffering. Couldn't find it. Someone said to me, you're really good at this. I'm only in the sports 12 months, 14 months this time. And that little boy came back to me, Eric. When I was at that finish line, I had the medal on my neck. And someone said it to me, you're really good at this. Like That's a really good time. The little boy came back and said, maybe you could be pro again. <laughs> it was a thaw. And I thought about it and I saw it away and he kept eating away at me. So I looked up and the time to be a professional triathlete in Ireland, you have to get the criteria of sub 930. So I said, you know what? Why not? Why can't I not try it? What's it? What have I got to lose? It gives me a drive. But I suppose the, when I sat down with myself, my main why and what got me up training every day of the week, people told me I wouldn't do it. People doubted me, said, no, you won't do it. You couldn't swim 12, 14 months ago. But my main way was to show people in the private areas or any areas that's been down the bad road, who has had childhood trauma, who has been brought into this life by parents who are irresponsible, who aren't willing to change themselves in order to better their kids. Mm. And that's been inflicted on kids and it's continuous. Yeah. For them, this is for kids in care. They've been put in care because their mother and father took drugs and died or whatever the, the, the case. So I've done that for all of them. That's what got me up out of bed. So I knew if I could do this coming from where I came from mm. with my story, I could be a beacon of life for so many and I could help so many achieve other things in life. That was my why. So I went about training. I trained every day of the week, three times a week. I was getting about two and three in the morning, testing the mind to see how strong I was. So I was setting my alarm at three in the morning randomly once a month just to test to see how much I wanted this. The alarm would go off and I'd be straight up out of bed, 100k on the bike, doesn't matter what weather it was. But that proved to me I wanted this. And I needed to leave no stone unturned. So when I landed in Barcelona in October 2018, and I stood there, I knew that I had left no stone unturned. I've done everything on, in my power, the best of my ability, uh, to try and achieve this dream. Um, and, you know, I stood there, and I remember standing there in Barcelona and the swim and the sun come up, and I just felt so good. Um, I've done the swim in a 106. I burst myself. I'm on Instagram, Eric, and I put up a video. They caught me coming out. I actually pushed about four people down my way. You know, <laughs> I wanted it that much. Like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, got on the bike. I remember on the bike after 100K, I knew what my splits were. So yeah. after 100K, I knew I had to be at a certain time. Again, I started welling up. I had to tell myself, you get mechanical here, this is all gone. So I had to back myself off emotionally all day. I got onto the run. I had to do a 306 run, I think, 
to achieve the sub three, right? Yeah. Running is my thing, like. That's your strongest discipline. Yeah, I love suffering in the run, like. But I'd never run at this pace, and I'd never been at this pace in the full Ironman yet. I remember at 20 miles, my whole body literally buckled. Like, I was like a banana. And I was like, what the hell is this like? Yeah. And um, again, I just reverted back to, you've trained your ass off. You Watch your boy. You're going to show people that can be done. It's going to be so important to get that message to be able mm. to go into, you know, to be able to talk to people. Mm. Um, 5K to go. And, uh, you know, I know it's in, like, I, I, I think I have 25 minutes to do 5K. And yeah. again, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing at this stage. And I'm, yeah. I'm actually choking up, like. So in an Ironman, there's like 100 metres of a red carpet, right? And it's 10 deep people, right? And I land on this red carpet. And my family is there. So I have four kids and a wife at this time. Some wasn't born yet. And my wife has the Ireland flag. I went from my kids seeing me in prison in 2016. Coming down to a prison. To stand on an Ironman, hand their dad the Ireland flag. Wow. You know, mm. I'm getting emotional thinking you're talking about. For me to do that and grab the Ireland flag out my kids and go through the finish line. And I pointed at the clock to show everyone I'd done it. Yeah. I came in at 9.25. Like, it enables me to, to inspire so many people, to talk to people in skilled prisons and youth centres mm. and show them it can be done. It's such a positive message. It's such a big thing. But consistency and hard work, like you can't get, it's not going to just come to you. You have to put the work in. You have to train hard. You have to really want the dream. Like the thing about a dream is, if you dream a dream, it may happen. If you believe in yourself, it will. And you have to believe in yourself. You have to put the work in, otherwise it's not going to happen. But that was probably the proudest, that was the proudest moment of my life to be able to do that, you know? Wow, Ger, that's just incredible, inspirational. You're some man, you really are. And it's no surprise to me that you were able to turn your life around because you seem to just have that resilience inside, that, that mental strength and you know, from losing your professional career, football career, so early on, dealing with such unfortunate life events, and you know, subsequent to that, and then ending up going down the wrong road and ending up in prison, and being able to turn it all around, and now you're back a pro. You're back a pro in a completely different discipline. You're gifted. You really are, man. It's absolutely incredible and inspirational. Like, what what a story you have, Ger. See, the thing is, when you're in that environment, look, I, I tell you, the first time I heard the word inspirational from the guy that I went to watch in the Ironman, the first time I heard that word, I actually laughed behind his back. You know? <laughs> I went like that, like inspirational, you know? Um, yeah. But it's not said enough in their environment. It's not said enough in the private areas. There's not enough in there believing in themselves. But there's also not enough there for them to, to do in terms of youth centres, mm. in terms of people coming in mm. and, you know, creating that environment where there's yeah. football on or soccer on or giving mm. them... Because a lot of these kids are being brought up by a bad generation, right? Yeah. So father. Father's more likely not there. Yeah. And then the mother is not coping too well, so she's probably taking something for that. So she's not mm. actually thinking right. And it's, it's hard for the women, I understand that. And they're probably drinking or something because they're looking for a different outlet. So yeah. it's a bad environment. It's a bad inspiration in their life. So it, it sort of leaves them on that, you know, with no hope, like. But you have a purpose today, Ger, and you go around to schools and, you know, you, you speak to the youth of today and you share your story and your journey. And, um, 
you try to inspire them and i think that's a wonderful thing like i do something similar as well and i find it to be so rewarding like i think kids need to hear these stories you know like not the old cliches oh hey kids don't do drugs because the reality is they're probably going to experience in drugs anyway they're probably going to dabble in it well most of them probably will but they need to hear these real life stories of triumph over adversity and that could be the game changer look it's so powerful that's the reason like the main reason i'm a professional triathlete and the main reason I continue to train as hard as I can is so I can maintain that license every year so I can go into a school and say, I am a professional athlete. Yeah. I'm still a professional athlete. I'm not going to be a professional athlete for one year. I'm going to be a professional athlete for as long as it takes for me to inspire enough kids in the private there to go, he's still a pro. Like it's, you know, it's not just a dream one year. It's, it's ongoing. It's hard work all the time. Yeah. But they need to hear someone from the area that's been down the road I've been, right? Yeah. There's not many people that are gonna actually match the the trauma I've been through, right? Yeah. They they'll probably match it, but you know, they they all have their own trauma and each individual is is unique to themselves and, and their own trauma, you know. But they need to hear a story like that. That he's been in the shit, he's been down the wrong road, he's been part of a gang, but he changed his life and now he's a professional athlete. So it can be done. So you're full of shit, you're making excuses. You only make excuses and you can't do it. Yeah. You're just being lazy or you're just being whatever. But it can be done because he has done it. So I think it's a very powerful message to be able to give that. So people can relate to me and go, hang on a minute. That lad has been through a lot. And he's pulled his life around. So, yeah. you know, you're making excuses for yourself. Well, Ger, I think your story is a powerful one. And it needs to be told far and wide. Not just in deprived areas or disadvantaged areas. Although, I think that's where it can have the greatest impact. But... Your story is transferable across all communities um, for everybody. There's so many life lessons in it, life messages in it, you know, that uh, that just that resilience, that determination and perseverance to be successful, even against all the odds. It's just it's a really, really powerful story. Um, what are you doing today, Joe? What's your job today? What's your livelihood? So I'm a coach, uh, Eric. So I'm a triathlete coach, run coach and a soccer coach. So I have um, a website, jerredmond.com, and yeah. that's how I make a living. I'm yeah. Daily, I do one-on-ones at the minute in, in a field, um, in the local field here, and I do a lot of online. So I'm, I'm primarily online-based. Yeah. But there's a living in it. Like, people want to work with me because of my mindset. Yeah. I'm a coach with a mindset. Yeah, well, there's no surprise there, Jer. It's... Uh... It's a fast-growing sport, you know, very popular in this country. My sister does it and her her, her husband, um, and uh, they, they love it. They're big into it, and uh, they're involved in the triathlon club in the Thai. But, you know, it, they're, it's a great community, you know, very positive, very ambitious community. And there's no, like, I, I can see why they would want to be, and many of them would want to be coached by you, uh, because you do. You have a, an incredible mindset, and you have a lot to offer. Um, Ger, just before I let you go, uh, and look, I could talk to you all day. It's been a brilliant chat. Love talking with you. Um, but I'm just thinking about you know your children. What does your children think of you today? I get a smile and a look at me kids like like I'm the hero, and that to me is magic. Because before I changed that, I didn't get that. Mm. I really didn't, you know, because I wasn't fully engaged with my family. I was engaged in other activities. And when you're engaged in other activities, you take the eye off the ball on what's really important in life. Um, yeah. So since I've changed, not only have I changed and now I'm a professional athlete, then that's great for me. Mm. But what's more important is that my kids 
are inspired by me and I could see it in their eyes when they come out in the house and they're like, give me, you run to me every time they run to me and give me a hug and a kiss. And that to me is magic, you know, that to me is, is, is the best feeling ever. And Jer, how do you feel about yourself? Are you proud of yourself? I'm very, I am proud of myself, but I'm a bit hard on myself as well, Eric, because I'm, I'm an achiever. Mm. So although I'm proud and I know what I've done is great and helping people is great, I still have a lot to do and I still have a lot of achievements, a lot of goals that I've set. I am hard on myself on my goals because mm. I like pushing myself and I sort of live on that. I love living on the edge of, can I do this? Who am I, you know? Back to the wall. Can you achieve this? You know, I always set the bar high. I'd rather set a high than set a low and score. Now, Ger, finally, um, you mentioned earlier on in the chat uh, about counselling. You mentioned a counselling session. And look, it's something that I'm always open and honest about in my life. Um, that You know, I've used the counselling and therapy and it's been a great help to me throughout my life because I'm in recovery today from addiction. And uh, it's the it's my chosen lifestyle today. It's my preferred one, the best one that suits me. And I'm okay to speak openly and honestly on that so do, do you mind Jar, just sharing a bit maybe of your experience with it all i'm very open to this eric this is something i like to talk about and i think it's we as men need to talk more about it and we need to as advocates we need to try and get that out there that's okay counseling and sports has saved my life right sports gave me the ability and the fitness and the lifestyle to actually realize that counseling was the way forward so it gave me that strength yeah. But when I got fit and I got healthy, then my mindset was fresh and healthy thinking. And what happened was, I suppose, when I got fit and healthy, I still had a lot of buried resentment, right? So I needed to get to the real cause of that to be fully fulfilled. Yeah. I went on to a show called Hell Week, Ultimate Hell Week. And in there, they, they, they identify all your weaknesses, right? <laughs> Do you know when you have a weakness and you think no one knows about it? <laughs> you won't get away with them lads, right? But what that show showed me was, you need to identify your weaknesses and work on it. Because as a man, that's what we should do. And don't be shy away from it. And so what people know? I don't care what people know my weakness are. So my weakness were, I had no confidence. The counsellor I went to see said I was like a league and booker. So what I'd do is I'd get, do a race, I'd have loads of confidence, and within a few days it'd be gone. So I was like a league and booker. So it wasn't yeah. holding confidence. And that came from childhood trauma. Yeah. And what I'd done was i started rebuilding my life. And identifying the issues I had in my life now as a, as a father and as a husband and, you know, so forth. And I started addressing them. Counselling has given me the confidence to self-believe everything. I used to not hug my wife, right? And she thought I was up to no good, right? This is the counselling. So we brought it to a couple because I'm all for like, you know, we have issues. Let's go to the professionals. Let's try and identify it. Let's not yeah. just argue about it. Let's yeah. do something real about it. Went to a couple of counsellors. What's the issue? I said, the wife said, he doesn't hug me. And she said to me, why don't you hug her? I said, I don't know. And she says, were you hugged? Were you ever hugged? And I was never hugged as a kid, Eric. Yeah. And yeah. that hit, I never, I never realised that. Yeah. It broke me. I, I sat there, uncontrollably crying. Yeah. I was never hugged as a kid. Yeah. And that's why I didn't hug my wife. And I didn't realise that. Um, and funny enough now, look, I'll hug my wife a lot more. And I have a lot more compassion, a lot more love for my wife now but they're the things that we need to address and by going to counseling and talking about the, the stuff that's buried inside you under the mat yeah. Yeah. it makes you a better person absolutely you know a lot, absolutely. Of us have a lot, a lot of us have a lot of negativity because of this and we lash out but by addressing it you become a more positive person and yes. and life is a lot better with counseling counseling is a great tool 
Wow, powerful words, Ger. It's uh, it's great to hear you speaking about counselling and therapy like that. Just rolling off your tongue, you know. And I think that's how it should be. Um, you know, we put too much stigma, uh, you know, around mental health, emotional health, and therapy and counselling and all that kind of stuff. But we should be able to go to a therapist the same way we go to a dentist or a GP or an optician or anything like that. So. Um, do you know what I think we're getting there slowly but surely but when you have people like you speaking out openly and honestly like this and you're bridging the gap and you're giving a lot of people out there comfort and hope I think it's absolutely brilliant exactly well said well Ger it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thanks for your time for your contribution and uh, I wish you nothing but the best and hopefully one day we can meet up and maybe do an old training session together. Cheers, Eric. Appreciate it. What a story we've just heard from Jer Redmond. I mean, that just goes from wanting to make it in a certain mm. place, becoming a professional footballer, falling into a place of adversity where easily he could have just given up and that could have defined him from that point on mm. to turning things around with his personal relationships, getting back into sport mm. and now looking to give a bit back as well. Probably oh. a lot that you can identify in there, Eric. Oh, loads. I can identify with them loads, but that's the thing, you know, there's just a lot of, it's like a few similarities there, you know, with us. And uh, I I can identify with a lot of what he's saying, you know, particularly early childhood and growing up and education. And, um, but what a story, what a, what a man, you know, he, he, he managed to turn it all around against the odds, you know, and, and, and he's proud of it and he's sharing his story, which is the most important thing because you don't get those, you don't get those lessons from a book. You know, those are the types of lessons that he can offer to people, life lessons, life messages, like, and his story needs to be told wide, far and wide because um, the impact that that can have on, on young kids, I think is incredible. Yeah. And it's something, again, I think that, you know, when you go to talk to schools as well, it's about trying to make sure that they've got options and that youngsters coming through can go a different path and not be maybe defined by what's around them. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. But like, if you think about it, like his life is like one, like it's, it's one that went in two different directions, you know, you know, the positive way and the negative way. But these roads are always open to people, you know, and it's very easily for young kids, especially vulnerable ones to fall down and go down, you know, fall through the cracks and head down the wrong road, you know, and he was a vulnerable young kid and uh, he didn't really have much options, much choices. And he went down that road and how many others does that happen to? And they don't, they're not able to get themselves back over it, but he managed to do it. And it just shows the incredible mindset and strength and courage that he had inside and now he talks about it and not only talk about it in a kind of a passing casual way he goes right into it he delves into it he talks about his feelings his emotions his thinking on things he talks about how things how you know childhood is like how the life that young kids live is a generational thing passed down to them by their parents, their grandparents. And he talks about trying to break that chain. And that's brilliant to hear that. Like, you know, that like sometimes it's not always best to follow suit, you know, that you have to go off and break the chain, make your own path. And he's doing that. And I know a few people actually who work with him, Will, and uh, 
in 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 the coaching in the triathlon area and they they have nothing but the highest praise for him they said that he's a brilliant guy to be coached by that he brings the best out in people and he gets a few more percentages out of him you know what i mean like he has an incredible mindset and there's no surprise there either but uh, what a what a story brilliant story maybe says a little bit about his drive as well eric when you consider like a normal mortal would probably go do you know what? i'll do a few triathlons i'll do this mm-hmm. kind of keep things going he goes extreme. He goes as far as you possibly can when it comes to uh, competing in triathlons. That's a guy who just wants to keep on pushing his own personal boundaries. Yeah. Like he talked about randomly setting an alarm clock on someone for 3 a.m. And if it went off, whatever day it went off, he just had to get up and go and cycle 100k. Like, you know, it's <laughs> these, are the, these are the things that like he was setting himself. But like he knew it. Like, you know, there's no shortcut to success. Like, you know, you have to put in the graft. And he couldn't even swim when he he couldn't even swim when he started out in the triathlons. And two years later, he's a professional. Like he's the kind of guy that I think, you know, no matter what he put his hand to, he was going to be a success at, you know. Um, and it would make you think as well that how many other young kids that have talent, bags full of talent, talent coming out of their ears, but they don't get that kind of support. And that the like that network around them to to kick on to that next level and pursue whatever it is that they're that they are good at or whatever it is they desire, um, that they end up falling down through the tracks like uh, or through the cracks into gangland criminality and drugs. And I love to hear him talking about that. And he's right. There is no, there is no. A successful outcome in that area. There is no fairy tale ending with that. It's either, as he said, prison or in a box. Yeah. Yeah. Scary thought, isn't it? Look, before mm-hmm. we go on this episode, I just want to wish you the best of luck uh, with Belfast this coming Saturday. Uh, looking forward to getting a chance to see you fight again after, you know, eight or nine months in the sidelines and not been able to fight. It's going to be great to have you back in there. And looking forward to having a back next week. We're going to be chatting to Tony Griffin next week, Eric. Yeah, thanks, Will. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to sitting down with Tony Griffin. He's a very interesting man. Uh, I've watched him a few times, listened to him a couple of times in his interviews. Brilliant, um, brilliant speaker, brilliant communicator. Talks about the, you know, life and talks about having, having had to look within himself to find the answers to to find his way in life because there was there was a period during his life where. He broke down. He literally broke down and f- felt like he couldn't go on anymore. And then he talks very candidly about using therapy, counseling. And these are the things that I'm very passionate about and helping himself to make a very successful life. And upon learning that, he has now developed uh, a charity organization called SOAR which does tremendous work for teenagers all over this country. I'm looking forward to this chat. Yeah, it's going to be great. Massively looking forward to having Tony Griffin on the show next week. If you want to listen back to any of the podcasts that we've had on Hooked on Health so far, Goaloud app is your first destination. Uh, all of the podcasts are uploaded there, but you can also pick up the podcast if you search for Hooked on Health on wherever you pick up your podcast from. We'll be back next week with Tony Griffin. Hooked on Health, a Go Loud original. Go ahead.